Anyway, we're in a series where we are trying to learn what is the one great thing that needs to be true in our lives. I introduced it last week with this sort of, you know, thought of if you had one message in your life to share with other people, what would that message be? If you only had one thing you wanted to communicate about your life, only one thing you wanted to be known for, and you wanted other people to be able to to get that message from you, what would it be? What would be your one thing? And last week I shared with you that my one thing, at least on those days when I'm thinking clearly and, and feeling right, my one thing, I want my one thing to be the same thing as Jesus's one thing. I want my one thing to be his one thing. And so we looked last week to try to find out what is Jesus's one thing. And as a matter of fact, a couple different times in the gospel, someone would come up to Jesus and they would be like, what's the, what's the one thing that needs to be done? Last week we saw this guy, he says, what's the one thing I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus gave him kind of a cryptic answer, but there's this easier to understand answer that is a little bit more commonly known, a little bit more popular. And so this is kind of our theme concept for this series. It's from Mark chapter 12. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noting that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is most important? The most important one, Jesus answers. Most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he keeps talking. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus is playing it a little bit loose with plurals and singulars here, right? Because he says there is no greater commandment, singular, than these, plural. It's because somehow Jesus thinks that the one thing is really two things. And he also thinks that these two things are really just one thing. That we think in terms of love God, love your neighbor. But Jesus is like, no, there is just one thing. Loving God is loving your neighbor. And so just by way of review, some of the things we talked about last week, I put them on the note sheet here. One was that loving God is actually loving others, and loving others is actually loving God. Those two things work hand in hand together. And then the second thing was that of all things in this world, there are lots of things that can block us from living in this one thing. And last week we read a guy who was wealthy. He was rich. And because he was rich, he had a hard time loving God and loving others the way he needed to. Lots of things can block us. And so to remind you of what this series is all about, I want to do kind of a deep dive over these next eight weeks. Last week was kind of introductory. I want to do kind of a deep dive over these next eight weeks, where each week we are going to tackle one aspect of this one thing. So we're splitting the one thing into eight things, right? But we're going to try to tie it all together so that you realize that this eight things is just really one thing. And, And each week, I'm going to try to address for you some of the things that might get in the way, some of the things that might hinder you from living that one thing, from letting that one thing shine through in your life. And so today, we're going to start deep diving all the way into the Old Testament Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the most famous Hebrew phrase. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verse 4. I'm going to give it to you in three different translations. The New American Standard, the New Living Translation, and the NIV. Now, we've already read it in the NIV the way Jesus quoted it, but these different translations translate it slightly differently, and it is the most, and I kid you not, it is the most popular, the most important Hebrew phrasing. If you meet a Jew who is an actual Jew and not just like a historical Jew or biological Jew, but they're, they're a religious Jew, they will have this memorized in Hebrew, and it goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Interesting, you'll notice there are two is's in this sentence. The New American Standard translates this same verse with two is's. The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. Now let me show it to you in another translation. We'll do the New Living Trans, New International Translation next. The NIV. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no is in the first phrase. There is an is in the second phrase. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So there's just a slight little nuance here that's going on that's different. One is two independent concepts. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. This one is slightly more close together. The Lord, the one who is our God. You know, the Lord or Yahweh, that's the Hebrew word behind L-O-R-D when it's in all caps. Yahweh is one, and that guy is our God. Well, now let's look at the New Living Translation. It's also slightly different. The New Living Translation says this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. They have the is in the first phrase, and they don't have the is in the second phrase, and they're emphasizing that the Lord alone is our God. Now, it's fascinating to me that you have these different translations for a verse that is the most well-known Hebrew verse among all Jewish people. It's kind of difficult to realize that they have that many different varieties, and they don't feel like they're completely different, right? I mean, unless you're like a grammar nerd like me, you basically don't even care about all this, but maybe you do. And so I want to show you how we got here and why it's important. In Hebrew, and I'm going to spell these kind of, sort of, phonetically. But in Hebrew, the actual phrase goes like this. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. And I, I pronounce it Yahweh because that's what we think it's pronounced. But Hebrew never had vowels originally. When it was originally written down, when Moses wrote his, his stuff down, he didn't use any vowels at all. Vowels hadn't been invented yet. Hebrew to this day doesn't have any real vowels as letters. Instead, they have dots and symbols and stuff on the top and the bottom of their letters that add extra vowels into them. And so we don't really know how to pronounce that first word. We think it's Yahweh based on a couple other words, like hallelujah ends with yah, and so we think Yahweh begins with a yah. That's one of the reasons why we think that, and other things as well. But we think it's pronounced Yahweh. Now, those other words are important too, so let's go back to them. Let's put them back up there because those other words are interesting. The middle word, Yahweh Eloheinu, is a word that if you've been in church for most of your life, you actually have heard before. It's the word Elohim. It just so happens that in Hebrew, when you want to make something, when you want to add like a, a pronoun to a word, you tack it on at the end. And so Eloheinu is our God. Elohim is the word for God. 
And I know you're familiar with that one. That's the one from Genesis chapter 1-1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew it says, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the word for God, most common word for God throughout the Old Testament. And so Yahweh Eloheinu means literally Yahweh our God. And then finally it says Yahweh Echad. And Yahweh Echad, Echad is the word that means one, but it doesn't just mean one. It means a very complicated one. This is the same word that shows up in Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, where God makes, uh, where God makes Adam a woman. And he brings the woman to Adam. And Adam is like, okay, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was me. God took my rib out, made someone different, brought her back to me. And then it says this phrase at the end. It says, and they became one flesh. And the word one there is the word echad. So it's this word that means something that is more complicated than just one, but it's still just one and somehow bigger than one. Now, why does this matter? It matters because of this. The Hebrew language does not have the word is in any of them because I think it's intentionally ambiguous that God wants you to associate all of these words with each other. Israel, pay attention. Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, one. It's just that. You want all four of those words to show up. And maybe there is is in there implied because the Hebrew language does that like a lot of other ancient languages. They just kind of imply is is all around. But what I want you to get at is that the two most common uses of the word that refer to God, Elohim, the normal word for God, Yahweh, the proper name that God gives to himself, those go together. If he's yours. It doesn't say Yahweh Elohim. It doesn't say the Lord is God. It says the Lord is your God. God is a personal God. He has never intended for him to just be sort of floating in space as God. He's like, you know what? Being God is great. I'm just here all by myself. No. The whole idea of God is that God is Yahweh Eloheinu. He is Yahweh, your God. But then the second thing is also clearly important, that there is only one. However complicated God might be, however fascinating God might be, however complex God might be, he is one, completely one. Let me show you what that means when you actually read other verses that help us understand it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 says this, 13 and 14. Moses is standing in front of the burning bush and he sees this burning bush and he says, okay, so what's your name? And the voice from the burning bush says, uh, he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell him? God, out of the burning bush, God, the word Elohim, Elohim says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God just simply says, hey, listen, I'm just the is guy. I just am the guy. I I, I am am, you know, I am who I am. I'm the one who created being. I'm the one who infused being into other things. I am the ammer. I am. But that doesn't work for Moses because Moses needs some name. And so the very next verse after this that we're not reading, but the very next verse after this, God then says to Moses, go tell them Yahweh has sent you. 
Because the Hebrew word I am sounds very similar to the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so God gave himself the proper name Yahweh because he is the I am. And still, you're asking me the question, okay, so why are we doing this big deep dive? I thought Jesus just said, love God. Loving God sounds so simple. Well, yeah, it sounds simple, but there's something that we miss all the time. And we got to get this. So I want to begin with this basic idea. Who is God? Who is this God that we're loving? Yahweh, the God who, who just is. He's no more. He's no less. He's indivisible. See, when it comes to us loving God, I think we have two basic problems. We have two basic problems with loving God. One is we don't understand love very well. We have a very weak idea of love as human beings on this planet. And number two, we don't understand God very well. And since we don't understand God very well and we don't understand love very well, it is so easy for us to say, oh yeah, I love God. And what we really mean by that is that when God shows up on my doorstep, I'll be like, dude, yeah, nice to have you around. Don't come in here. Because I mean, hey, it's messed up in here, but nice to have you around. Good that you're in the neighborhood. You know, that's, you know, I love, I love God. That's kind of the attitude that we have. But you have to realize that if God is the I am, if he's the burning bush God, if he's the God who says, I am who I am, I'm not more, I'm not less, I'm indivisible, I'm one, I'm your God, I'm just one, I just am who I am. If that's the case, then that means your love for him is different from your love for anything else. Because his isness and his oneness make him different from everything else. And so loving God is loving him in a way that we don't understand. It doesn't relate to the rest of this world. Let me describe it to you this way. Loving God is a love that is encompassing and primary. Let me give you these two ideas through illustration. Encompassing. We live in a world where love gets split up in a lot of different ways. For example, you might show up at my house and I'd be like, oh, I love that sweater on you. You know? Oh, hey, I love what you've done to your hair. Or man, I love that car. Or you know what? I just really love what you did last week and what you said to that other person last week. I love that so much. Come on in here. Let me show you my house. I love this plant. What we do is we take the big thing and we split it into the little things so that we can love the little things and we don't have to be so you know, committed to the bigger things. I don't have to love you as like human being as long as I love a lot of little things about you. You know, I, I, love, I love the way you talk to me. I love how fun it is to hang out with you. I really don't love the way you smell. I don't love the kind of food that you think is yummy. And I really don't like the way you drive, but I love all kinds of other things about you. And so I'm just going to focus on the positives and eliminate the negatives. And we do that with God all the time. We're like, God, you know what? I just love what you did when you helped me to find that parking spot. God, I love that you helped me to get my keys back when I thought I had lost them. God, I love this about you. I love that you are gracious to me, that you sent Jesus to this world. I love that today at church was great, or I love that this other time was fabulous when I was reading your Bible, but there's so many other times when it's just, we don't want to focus on the negatives. 
God, I really didn't like it when you did that other thing. And God, I really didn't like it that one week we went to church and man, that was just a mess. And, and God, I really didn't like it when you caused me to lose my keys and I didn't like it when I had to park way far away. We compartmentalize our love for God just like we compartmentalize our love for everything else. But I got to tell you, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. You can't split them up and say, hey God, I really like this thing about you, but I didn't like this other thing about you. Who God is, is all or nothing. Who God is, is all at once. And even though there are things about God that we want to compartmentalize and be like, God, I don't want that peace. God is like, sorry, you get me, and I want you. That's the problem with relationships. The other person brings their entire person to it, and so do you. It's just a mess. But God says, no, we're all in this together. But there's a second thing I said. I said it was encompassing, but I also said this love has to be primary. And what I mean by that is I think what we tend to do is we hear the phrase, love the Lord your God. And we think that what we're really needing to do is we're needing to focus on love, okay? So it says, love the Lord your God, okay? So love is the thing that needs to happen. And so because love is my active word, I think the sentence in my mind kind of goes like this. How should I respond to God? Well, the answer is love, right? How should I respond to God? Love. There's just one problem with that. And the problem is that there are lots of other things I need to respond to. How should I respond to my mother? The proper answer would be love, right? How should I respond to my children? Well, the proper answer is love, right? How should I respond to the neighbor who irritates me? Well, the proper response is love. How should I respond to blank, blank, whatever the situation is? Love, right? And then what we've done is we've watered God down to all the other things. And we're thinking, God is just another thing I have to respond to. And I'm supposed to love God just like I'm supposed to love my neighbor, just like I'm supposed to love all these other... It's just one of, the, one of the many things. But I want you to think about this phrase differently. When Jesus says, when the Old Testament says, love the Lord your God, it's not saying, here's God, respond to him with love. It's saying, God put love in you, where's it supposed to go? God put love in you, where does it go? Who gets it? Love the Lord your God. God is primary. See, the picture that we need to have in our hearts and our minds is that love has been put in me only for God. And all the other things that I might love, that's trickle-down love. All the other things around me that I might love, that's, that's the spillover love. I'm going to love God, and some of my love is going to leak out onto the people around me. And it's going to leak out onto my neighbors. It's going to leak out onto my family. It's going to leak out onto, onto the people that I don't even like. But I'm loving God, and there's just so much extra love that he's giving to me that it's just spilling out all over. Love God. Now, I know this doesn't really settle into our hearts all that deeply yet. And so what I thought we would do is we would do a deep dive today in the first four commandments. So remember last week, 
uh, I showed you this passage where this guy says, Jesus, what do I need to do to, be, to receive eternal life? And Jesus mentions a bunch of commandments, but he skips over these first four. He skips over the first four commandments that are widely understood to be the commandments about your relationship to God. And Jesus just skipped over them last week to make a point. Well, today, let's dig into them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them to you from Deuteronomy chapter 5. The most famous verse, the Hebrew John 3.16 basically, is the one we already read, Deuteronomy 6.4. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But then we get to the previous chapter, Ten Commandments chapter, Deuteronomy 5, and these are the first four as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the one we number, number one. The Catholic Church traditionally numbers this one and the next one as one, and then they split the one at the end that we have, uh, we have coveting as one command. They split it up into two commands. But in our church, we generally just do this one as number one. So this is number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And now we get to number three. Or no, th- this one actually has some more expansion on it. Let's go back to that. Uh, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number one, short and sweet. Commandment two gets a whole extra paragraph. Now, commandment number three, let's take a look at it. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's actually short and sweet. Let's go on to number four. It says this, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Sounds short and sweet, but God gives a whole paragraph on this one. Take a look at this. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. File that away for just a little bit. We'll come back to it. But then he keeps talking. He says, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God does an interesting thing where he gives two of these commands explanation, extra explanation. And what I want to do is I want to kind of dig into these commands a little bit with you today. And I'm not going to dig into them in order. I want, to track, I want to track them in a different order because I think in our world today, the most important one we need to talk about is commandment number two. And so I'm going to save that one to the end, and I'm going to deal with these other ones out of order. But I want to show you something that I think is really, really interesting. I'm going to start with the Sabbath one. Commandment number four says, honor the Sabbath. But God specifically said in that, if you paid attention, that they are to receive a day off, and they are to give a day off. Did you notice that? God said, I brought you out of Egypt. You were slaves, no days off. I brought you out of Egypt, and I'm giving you this great, amazing land in which to live. And so what I want you to do is I want you to honor the Sabbath. Now, I know some of you probably know the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. 
And in Exodus 20, the rationale for the Sabbath command is that God worked for six days when he created the world, and then he rested on the seventh day. But this one here is this command about God saying, I gave you time off, and I want you to treat the people in your town the same way. I gave you time off, I want you to give time off to others. If you didn't pick up on it before, today I want to ask you this very simple question. Is God giving the Sabbath command number four as a command for you to honor God or a command for you to honor other people? Yes. Okay, there you go. It's both. Even though this command, we all, if you've been in church for however long, you all think about this command as, I need to go to church one day a week, you know? Or I need to give God some of my time. I need to give God a portion of my time. The Sabbath is all about me and my relationship with God. And yet, here, right in this command, it was, God says, yeah, you're going to honor the Sabbath because I'm giving you a day off. But don't take the day off and make someone else work. Take the day off and give that day off to someone else too so that they may rest as you do. Um, Let's go ahead and move on, though. Number three, misusing God's name. What's weird about this is that I don't think American Christians have a real good handle on what misusing God's name is all about. We think misusing God's name is having the word G-O-D come out of the mouth of a person who is not praying. So if anyone says the word G-O-D without praying or talking about something in a religious context, then that person has just used God's name in vain. The constant one is the O-M-G phrase that people are like, oh, that's, you know, when you're a kid, at least when I was a kid, if I ever said that, my mom would be all over my case and she'd be like, we don't take God's name in vain, right? Because that's the old King James way of phrasing it. Take God's name in vain, which when I was a kid, I never really understood what it meant to take God's name in vain. I wasn't taking it anywhere. I was clearly giving it, right? So, so why, why is it even calling taking God's name in vain? Well, it's because of this. Because the idea of taking God's name in vain has nothing to do with spewing it out of your mouth in, inappropriately. And it has everything to do with acting as if God's name is somehow mine. It has everything to do with acting as if I can take God's name and use it for my benefit. That's why misuse is a better translation of this concept because in the ancient world, if you knew the name of a spiritual being, you could invoke that spiritual being's name over circumstances and those circumstances would have to change. If you knew the name of a demon, you could invoke the name of the demon and the demon would have to obey you. If you knew Baal's name, you could invoke the name of Baal and the god Baal would have to listen to you and do whatever it is that you said. And God had given in the burning bush, he had given his private, secret, personal name, Yahweh. And he was like, you are not going to use my name as if it's your name. And so the early Jews got so freaked out. They got so freaked out about commandment number three that they were like, hey, we should never say this name out loud. And as a result, in history, we have forgotten how to pronounce it. Like, we think Yahweh is the best way of pronouncing that name, but we don't actually know, because literally no Jewish person has ever heard it or said it in perhaps 2,000 years. To this day, 
If you are reading a document written by a Jewish person and it has the word God in it, the document will remove the vowel from that word and it will be G-D. To this day, and also to this day, if a Jewish person says that out loud, they won't say the G word. They won't say God. They will actually say the word Hashem. Because Hashem in Hebrew literally translated means the name. And so when they are referring to God, they call God the name. It's a little Voldemorty. But I need you to know that that's important. If you're familiar with the whole idea of Voldemort, don't say his name. That is the reason ancient cultures thought they could use the name of their deity to get special favors for themselves. And God says, you're not doing that with my name. Don't misuse my name. But don't miss this. Commandment number three is about leveraging the identity and power of God for your benefit. Taking God's name and putting it on this vain, empty vessel that is me. That's what command three is all about. And when in the world would I ever want to do that? Think about yourself. Think about the times when someone might invoke the name of God to sort of increase something about themselves. Well, let's say the person is really upset. The person might say, ah. Oh. But if they're really upset, they might say, oh my God. Let's say a person is trying to prove to you that they are telling the truth. And they would say, man, I'm telling you the truth. And you just don't believe them because they've been lying to you for their whole life. And you're like, I just don't believe you. And, you. and the person's like, no, I swear to God. Or the person who says, hey, man, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a little shady about this particular transaction that we're going to enter into, but no one's looking, so let's just do it. And then they drive away in their car that has the little fish sticker on the back. What I'm saying is there are lots of times in our lives where we act like Christians when it benefits us to act like Christians. When we act like we have a relationship to God when it benefits us to have a relationship with God. And God says, I just am who I am. You can't leverage a portion of me to get something for yourself. And think about it just one little step farther. When does a human being invoke the name of God? Does that human being invoke the name of God because that human being feels more comfortable when they invoke the name of God? Or does that person invoke the name of God because they're trying to influence a person around them? If I'm all by myself, I don't need to say, well, I swear to God, right? If I'm all by myself, I would only do that if I'm trying to influence another person or, to be more blunt, if I'm trying to gain power over another person. The reason command three is a command is that God says, you will not use my identity to either leverage me against me or to leverage me against someone else. Is this a command about honoring God or is this a command about honoring the people around us? Yeah. Once again, when you get the full picture of what's going on here and the reason this command even exists, it's also very relational, not just vertical. But now let's go to the, the first two. Command number one really seems like it's only about God. 
God specifically says, have no other gods. Um, But you need to know why this is an issue. Like, why would a person have another God? God, Yahweh is the creator of the universe. Why would you ever want another God? Why would you ever have another God? It's because you and I think in terms of God being the most important being in the entire universe. The people in the ancient world, they understood something differently. They understood that there was a God over the rain, and there was a different God over the sun, and there was a different God over the dirt, and there was a different God over the womb, and there was a different God over this other thing, and this other thing, and this other thing, and this other thing. And what you needed to do is you needed to decide where your own priorities were. Because if you were a farmer, you really didn't want to spend much time on Honoring the God of war, because the God of war was just going to cause problems for you. But if you were a warrior, you didn't want to spend much time honoring the God of the sun, because it's a whole lot easier to do your dirty work at night. And as a result, you got to pick and to choose which God you were going to go after, and it was a constant competition. Like, if you didn't like one God, you could just go to the other God and be like, hey, Target didn't help me. I'm gonna, I mean, Baal didn't help me. I'm going to come over here to Asherah because Asherah is the one who's going to get my stuff done. And the whole idea of having other gods, when phrased like that, really kind of seems selfish, doesn't it? I'm only in this God thing for me. I'm only following Baal or Yahweh or Asherah or Molech because of what they can do for me huh, it's, a, it's amazing that we've grown out of this kind of idea. Grown out of this kind of idea that the only reason I'm going to follow God is because of what he's done for me lately. Grown out of this idea that if someone else can provide me what I'm looking for, I'm going to go ahead and go to that other thing for right now. Isn't it great that we've grown out of such things? The problem is we haven't, of course. We still worship other gods. We just don't call them Baal. We don't call them Asherah. We don't call them any of these other things. Sometimes we call them Republican. Sometimes we call them Democrat because these are the groups, these are the entities that can give us the power we're after. These are the entities that can solve our personal problems that we're worried about. And so, yeah, I'll worship Yahweh on Sunday, but on Monday, you better believe I'm paying all my attention to this other thing out here that can get me what I want. God says no other gods. And strangely enough, we are as divided today about all our little worship things as the people have ever been in human history. This isn't a new time of division. This is just all of a sudden realizing that, oh yeah, we really do hate people who don't believe the same thing as us. But God says, no other gods. So is this command a command about honoring God? Or is it a command about honoring other people? Uh, Yeah. Or here's this last one. And I saved this one for last. And I'm sorry because I might end up preaching a little bit on this one. Because this one, is, this one is big on my heart. But command number two, God says, have no idols. Which I kind of interpret as don't fall for a false image. In the phrase in the text, he says, you shall, ha- you shall make no image. You shouldn't worship that image. You shouldn't bow down to that image. You shouldn't invest in that image. And I was kind of wondered, man, this command is so pointless to the modern world today, right? Because I've never once 
been asked by anyone around me to bow down to some statue of someone. You know? Yeah, we have statues, but I've never treated those statues as if they were important or anything. You know, if there was a statue in some town and that statue was standing or that statue came down, I wouldn't have a problem with whether that statue was standing or came down uh, because it's just a statue, right? It's just an image of something, and I'm not a person who worships images. And so for the longest time, I thought, you know, this whole commandment number two, it doesn't have any relationship to me. I don't have any relationship to it. Why would God need to tell me? No, that was just the old school Jewish people in the ancient Israel world. You know, they had their problems with idols. I don't have a problem with idols, and so I don't have to worry about that too much until I began to realize something about idols that I don't think we talk enough about. And it is is the most important idol in the entirety of the Old Testament. You probably know about it. It was immortalized in the movie, The Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from the mountain and he crashes the stone tablets because he sees in front of him the golden calf. I know you know this story, at least some of you do, okay? And so I want to show you the passage of the golden calf because it is unbelievable what is going on here that too often we have just looked over. It's in Exodus chapter 32. Take a look at this. Exodus chapter 32, verse 2. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. All this care he's putting into to shaping this idol, shaping this thing into the shape of a golden calf. We'll keep reading. He says this. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And I kid you not, for many, many years, I had no idea what this part meant. Why in the world would the people point to a single golden calf and say the phrase, these are your gods? That doesn't make sense, right? You wouldn't point to a single idol and then say, these are your gods. That never never made sense to me. Secondarily, this god, this idol, had just been made right then in front of their eyes. Clearly, it had not led them out of Egypt. Right? So that didn't make sense. This idol had not led them out of Egypt. That doesn't make sense. This idol was one idol, and yet they called it their gods. And then Aaron, to top it all off, He says, I'm going to put an altar in front of this thing, and tomorrow we're going to have a festival to the Lord, Yahweh. Here's the part of the story that I've talked about a few times here, but has not been talked about enough in Christian circles. The people did not think the calf was a new God. In fact, The reason they say these are your gods is because you would generally use a plural pronoun, these, when you are using a plural noun, gods. And it just so happens that the plural noun, gods, is the Hebrew word Elohim. Because in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, The Hebrew word behind the word God with a capital G is Elohim. When it's got the plural im ending, we capitalize the first letter. That's what we do. 
because it refers to the God who is so big and so powerful and so important that he refers to himself with the words, we. The people did not look at the calf and think it was somehow a new God. The people looked at the calf and said, this is now the thing that represents our God. These are your gods? No, mistranslation. This is your God, capital G. They thought Yahweh God was being represented by this golden calf. And they had reasons to believe that. I mean, they had a lot of really good reasons too. Because after all, you know, God, when he commanded a sacrifice, one of his favorite sacrifices was a bull. And a bull is an animal that is a bovine. And there was another part of the bovine family that you would sacrifice on a fairly regular basis. And that was the firstborn calf of any cow. Anytime a cow gave birth, the firstborn was supposed to go back to God. And so the firstborn calf was an animal that you would sacrifice back to God. And so God had as his number one sacrifice a cow animal, and one of the most precious, valuable cow animals was the firstborn calf. And so it made perfect sense that you would use a golden version of a firstborn calf to represent the God of the burning bush who brought you out of Egypt and you loved so much, you wanted to sacrifice to him so you'd have an altar built for him. And you wanted to bring to that altar a sacrifice that represented God as well as you could. And it made perfect logical sense that if a sacrifice of a bull was good for God, if a sacrifice of a cow was good for God, then a cow could be a good mascot for God. And that's all they were doing. They were just building this mascot for God, this representation of God, this symbol of God. And that's why God said no. God didn't say no to the idols because he thinks it's a stupid thing to bow down before a golden statue. God didn't say no to idols because he thinks it's a bad idea to build piles of rock and think they're important. That's not the reason God said no to statues. That's not the reason God said no to idols. He said no to idols because he is who he is and nothing can represent him. There is no mascot for God. When he shows up in his most visible form to Moses, all it is is fire, constantly changing, not even doing the thing you expect it to do by burning up the bush. It's just some type of fire. All that Moses can be is like, this is new. This is different. This is unlike anything else. This is holy, separate. And God is like, that's right. I just am who I am. In fact, you can call me I am. The reason God says no idols is that you can't put him in such a small box. It's like, okay, well, we don't, we don't have a problem with that today, do we? We don't deal with that kind of stuff. I mean, we don't... Um, but I want to tell you, yeah, we do. There's so many ways in our society, especially in churches, where we have things that we think symbolize God. And there are lots of different ways all of us have found little mascots of God in our lives. 
Little things that symbolize God. For you, maybe it's a style of music. There's a particular style of music that touches your heart, and that style of music feels more spiritual to you. That style of music feels more meaningful to you. It, it touches you in such a way that you're just like, yeah, this is, this is the real God music. And sometimes you are tempted to judge those other people with their other kind of music as if that sort of stuff is less godly. Maybe you're the person who thinks that an organ is somehow more spiritual than a drum kit. Maybe you're vice versa. Maybe you're the person who thinks that a wailing lead electric guitar is more spiritual than a keyboard. Maybe you're the person who says, no, a cappella music is the most beautiful spiritual music. But whatever it is, every one of us has a musical mascot that somehow we think represents God a little bit better. And that's just the icing on the top of this annoyance surface that I have with the way all of us treat God. Because music is one of the easy, low-hanging fruits to point out, but there's other ones down below it. Should I say, maybe even the idea of God being Father and Jesus being the Son and the Holy Spirit, that is biblical. Jesus calls the Father the Father. The Father calls the Son the Son. Scripture calls the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you what, if you think now you understand something about God because of this metaphor father that has shown up in your, ling- in your language, no, that's just a mascot. That's just a, a weak, partial understanding. If you think that God is somehow masculine or that masculinity is somehow more godlike than femininity, then you have crossed the line into idolatry. You've crossed the line into worshiping a thing that is not actually God, but sometimes has sometimes been partially used to refer to an aspect of God. You want to know what God's real name is? It's not Father. It's I Am. But He chooses to be known as Father because He loves you and He wants a relationship with you. But He's not actually a guy. He's not walking around with a power tool waiting for a honeydew list so He can fix another thing. Our problem is that we take all the things we know about God And then we act as if they are God. And we do it with doctrines. We do it with cultural expressions of Christianity. We do it with the way we read the scripture. We do it with the way we worship God. We do it with our relationships. I can't point out to you all the idols in your life because I can't even point out all the idols in my life. But I do know this. None of them are God. And I want to love God, which means for the whole rest of my life, I'm going to have idols getting broken. And for the whole rest of my life, I'm going to learn new things about God that have shaken my understanding of what God is and who God is and how he loves me. For the whole rest of my life, no matter how many times I read the Bible over and over again, I'm going to find something new in there and I'm going to be like, oh my goodness, this is a burning bush moment. God just is who he is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's himself. Nothing else refers to him. No other names can contain him. No box can hold him. He is. But there's two other little things on this idea of commandment number two that I think are incredibly important. In fact, I think there are two really important reasons why God gave this no idols command in the first place. And it wasn't all about don't put God in a box. I think it was also about a very specific thing. God says, 
you shall make no image of me. Let me show you what Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do you know why you and I are not allowed to make an image of God? Because he made his own. Because the invisible God cannot be contained in any image other than Jesus himself. Jesus the Son came to earth, embodied God in a body. And somehow, for some reason, the image of God has actually been manifest into a visible fashion. And the reason you shouldn't make a calf is that a calf is stupid. The reason you shouldn't make any other sort of idol is that all those idols are stupid. All those idols are weak. They're dumb. They cannot do anything. And by the way, you made them. But God has already identified his image. And the Father was pleased to have the fullness of his deity dwell in the Son. And so Jesus came to us, came to, the, to us from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he is the literal embodiment of God. The image of God has been made. It is Jesus. Oh, but there's even more. Because you might wonder, how is it that Jesus, walking on this earth, could be the image of God? After all, he was just a person, right? He was God in a human being's flesh. So the visible part that we were seeing was a human. Yeah. Because you go all the way back, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, one of my most important verses for us. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Do you know why we're not allowed to make images of God? It's because you have one right next to you. Because you see one when you look in the mirror. That's why command number two shows up. It doesn't have this exclusivity of God doesn't want you to make a statue. It's something so much bigger than that. And so I want to ask you, is command number two a command about honoring God or is it a command about honoring the people around you? Yes! How? How in the world can I be a person who loves God the way God wants to be loved, the way God deserves to be loved? How in the world can I be a person who loves the one true God, the only true God? How can I be a person who loves Yahweh my God, Yahweh alone? How can I be that person? Well, I'll tell you. Because God has made it so easy on us. Love God. How? Love Jesus. How? Love someone around you. It's throughout the entirety of the Bible, from beginning to end. That's why Jesus says, I'll give you the command, love God, love others. No command singular is greater than these because these are the command. 
You can't love God without loving people. Here's a verse I wanted to show you last week, but it got up on the screen from the wrong part of John. I wanted it to be from 1 John. It actually got onto the screen last week from normal John, and so it was the wrong one. But here is it again. 1 John 4.21. It says, And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. This is the simple solution. If you want to be a person who loves God, the one true God, the only God, if you want to be the person who loves God, well, then learn everything you can about Jesus and fall in love with who he is. And while you do it, you're going to express it by loving the people around you. Loving God is loving other people. How do I love God? Love Jesus. How do I love Jesus? Love other people. It's simple as that. One thing. It might feel complicated. It might feel like there's a lot of other stuff to worry about and think about. But it really means just ignoring all this other stuff and finally coming back to saying, okay, God, I just want to love you. Help me take that step today. I don't know where this lands for you, But for me, I just want you to be a person who falls in love with God, the real God, the one true God, not some fake imaginary image of God, not some mascot for God, not some theory about God, not some idea about God. I want you to fall in love with the one true God, and I want you to live deeply into that. And I want you to live deeply into that by understanding Jesus and falling deeply in love with him. And I want you to live deeply into that so much so that if Jesus were to love someone, you love that person too. And since he loved everybody, man alive. You're just loving everybody. It's a mess. Your life will get ruined. You will be loving too many people. They will take advantage of you. Someday you might even be feeling like you're persecuted for the name of Jesus. Someday you might even feel like someone is nailing you to a cross. But guess what? It doesn't matter how dark Friday gets. Sunday's coming and the resurrection is promised to all of us. So give yourself completely to this. Love God, this one thing, and in doing it, love Jesus, love the people around you. And I'm convinced the world is still yet to be changed another time. We just have to be people who live this one thing. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.